Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Consider verses 1 through 3 this evening, and Lord willing, verses 3 through 5 next Lord's Day. Please join me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing. Oh, great God, we who are weak in ourselves, both this minister and this congregation, we who in ourselves are poor and needy and unable to to stir ourselves up to hear the preaching of your word, would ask you now, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of life, in dependence upon Jesus Christ raised from the dead and the Father who raised him, we depend upon you, O triune God, to preach this message now, to open up our ears to hear the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep, to use this poor minister to be your ambassador and instrument, that the seed of the word may be sown and that it may take root in hearts and grow and increase for your glory, the glory of your grace. Be with us, O God. Help us, and may the resurrection power of Jesus Christ be manifest in our midst even now, we ask in his name. Amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we continue in the body of the letter to the Colossians, Paul is more specifically and more intentionally combating the so-called Colossian heresy. We've mentioned this Colossian heresy at various points throughout our, our series, most, most deeply in the first sermon on Colossians 1, 1, and 2. The Colossian heresy, what the, the false teaching that the Colossian church was dealing with at the time of Paul's writing is, in a nutshell, a combination of pagan thought with Old Covenant ceremonial laws. It was, in an even smaller nutshell, that you needed to add to Jesus Christ to get the greatest spiritual benefit. Christ gets you into the, into the front door, gets you into the ground level, but you need to add to him to get the greatest spiritual benefit, greater access to God. So this Christ plus message, this message of needing to add pagan thought or of adding the old, done away with ceremonial laws of the old covenant, adding to Christ to get the greatest spiritual benefit is why Paul writes this letter, and we come to see that in greater focus as we move into chapter 2. In place of this error, 
that we need to add to Jesus Christ, that he is somehow deficient, that he is somehow not enough for the people of God, that he does not supply the fullness of heavenly life for our earthly pilgrimage. It is this error that Paul wants us, in in view of this error, Paul wants us to see rather the superabundance, the more than enoughness of Jesus Christ and the blessing that is ours in him. And if you are tempted to think that this Colossian heresy is of mere historical information, of mere historical interest, we don't deal with such things today. I could make a case, one could make a case, that what we deal with as the church moves on toward consummation, the false teachings only get more sophisticated. At least this Colossian heresy was bold and upfront to say, you need to add to Christ. No one in their right mind today would listen to such a brazen, blunt message. But how subtly do we do this, congregation? How subtly do we add to Jesus Christ, thinking that he is not enough for all of life and godliness? And I warn you, and I warn myself with respect to this. Of course, Paul does not write with chapter and verse. What we see here in chapter 2 begins in what we mark as chapter 1, verse 24. From 124 to about two, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is opening up more of that treasure chest for us, opening up more of the riches and the fullness of spiritual blessing that is for us, for the believer, so that we won't be fooled by this false teaching, any false teaching, which we'll see more fully, Lord willing, next week. So we'll see this as Paul unpacks more of the riches of Jesus Christ in these three verses in three points. First of all, we see the pastor's agony for the sheep. The pastor's agony for the sheep. This is verse 1, but it is connected to chapter 1, verse 29. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. For this I toil, presenting everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. The word that Paul uses there in chapter 1, verse 29, struggling, and the word he uses there in chapter 2, verse 1, a struggle, how great a struggle is the word. You may remember we talked about this last time, agony. He is agonizing. Pastor Paul is agonizing in pastoring the flock of God purchased with his precious blood. Notice how Paul starts off there in chapter 2, verse 1, which is really his continuation of what he said at the end of chapter 1, explaining how he toils and agonizes to present everyone mature in Christ to enable them to press on to maturity from infancy to adulthood in Jesus Christ. Notice how he continues there in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he wants us to know this. He wants us to be aware of his pastoral agony. It is of some value at least, Paul would not say it otherwise, it is of some value that the sheep know the agony of the under-shepherd. It is good for the church to know the pastor's pastoral labors and intensely agonizing one at that. We'll see why more clearly in a moment. Paul mentions there in verse 1 something of the magnitude of his pastoral agony. I want you to know how great an agony, how great a struggle I have for you. How great there mentions the intensity of his agony, the severity of his struggle. This is a word that points up the relative high point on a scale. 
This is near redlining in agony for the, for the ministry of word, sacrament, and prayer. So pastoral ministry is a struggle. It is an agonizing task to unpack the word of God to the people of God, ministering sacrament and prayer as well with discipleship and discipline. It is a strain against opposition. And in this window, this more descriptive point in verse 1 of the pastor's agony for the sheep, we also see who the agony is for. Paul mentions those three groups there in verse 1. It is for you, the Colossian church he's writing to in prison in Rome, and for those at nearby Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face or seen my face in the flesh. Most important there, as, as Paul circles out from the Colossian church to the Laodiceans to, to anyone, which in, in his mind could be us as well, future generations, he is doing this. His agony is on the behalf of the church. It is for the benefit of the church. Pastoral agony is not something the minister undergoes to go through penance and in self-flagellation make himself feel better about being a sinner. It is for the benefit of the sheep. So just as we saw a few sermons ago in chapter 1, verse 24, how there is a, a mysterious union between the past historical sufferings of Jesus Christ that he is so pleased to put his perfect suffering in union with our suffering in this age, all a prelude to glory, as there is a mysterious union between Christ and the Christian in suffering, there is a mysterious union between the pastor and the church in the pastor's agony to present the church mature before Christ. This is the purpose of his pastoral agony. Which brings us to our second point, the purpose of the pastor's agony. The purpose of the pastor's agony in verse 2. Why does Paul struggle? Why does Paul have such a great struggle for the church, whether he knows these believers or not? Verse 2, that in order that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This is the purpose of the pastor's agony. The, the athletic imagery in that word agonizomai, agony, being present in what Paul is saying, I strain against opposition and hardship to give you Christ. It is an agonizing work to do so. Now, there are other reasons we know for pastoral agony. Think of Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. That humbling list of things that Paul went through that would make many pastors quit. Shipwrecked multiple times, 39 lashes at the hands of the Jews five times, in danger from rivers and robbers, sleepless nights, hunger, nakedness, all kinds of opposition in that unique foundation-laying age of the church in taking the gospel from Israel to the nations. Of course, that it was an agonizing work for Paul. But as Paul mentions there in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, not to mention all these things, he mentions this in distinction from all those, we could say, circumstantial hardships, physical hardships, not to mention my anxiety for all the churches. Now, we're not looking at 2 Corinthians, we're looking at Colossians. We're not going to get into why Paul is talking about his agony there in Corinthians. 
But that is not the kind of agony that Paul is talking about here. The, the typical, what we, in, in some measure, probably all know about that all pastors struggle with. Opposition within the church, both member to member and member to, to minister. The, the, the petty things that can come up. The distractions from Christ that, so, that all too easily come up. There is hardship in ministry for all kinds of reasons, both in the sinfulness of the minister and in the sinfulness of the ministered. But the point I'm making here, the point that Paul is making here, is that that's not the kind of agony he's talking about in writing to the Colossians. His pastoral agony here, I think, has nothing to do with his own sinfulness or the sinfulness of the congregation. I think the, the pastoral agony here is something more glorious, something more mysterious, more wonderful than that. Why is there agony? Why is there, is there pastoral agony in Paul's ministry? I think because the toil of pastoral ministry lies in the daunting task of setting forth all of Christ to all of the church. That is key to get for this passage. The toil of pastoral ministry lies in the daunting task of setting forth all of Christ to all the church. That, I think, is why in verse 1 Paul says, I want you to know how great my struggle is for you, church, because I am busting my tail to unpack the entire bottomless, brimless treasure chest that is Jesus Christ for all of you, for all of your circumstances, for your several callings and, and, and responsibilities, for all of you, for all of life, this age and the age to come. Who could possibly do that work? What single man, what single minister could unpack all of Christ for all of the church? That is why pastoral ministry is a pain, is an agony, because we cannot, should we preach incessantly without sleeping, we could never possibly get to the bottom of the spiritual blessing incarnate, crucified, dead, raised, and ascended that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe there is a, an element, maybe there is a, a sense in which tangentially Paul has in view that more 2 Corinthians 11 sense of the, the hardship, the, the opposition hardship it is that the, the pastoral ministry is, is an agony, why, why pastoral ministry is an agony. That these people, that these Colossian believers fail to see the significance of Jesus Christ that Christians fail to see all the riches that are theirs in Christ, such that they think that they need to go elsewhere for what they need than Him. Maybe that is also part of the agony for the minister. Why Paul writes this, this letter under the God-breathing ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the agony, that is the toil inherent in pastoral ministry, the daunting and in ourselves, impossible task of unpacking all of the riches of Jesus Christ in union with him, the, the benefactor of those riches, for all those in union with him. 
but in the weakness of the minister, in the agony of the minister, and in the agonizing work for the church, in the weakness of the church, thankfully, the resurrection power of Christ is manifest such that when we are weak, He is seen to be, He is enjoyed and known to be as strong by the power of an indestructible life. What, what are some of the specific components, the specific ways this purpose is played out here in verse 2? A few things at least, that their hearts, that the hearts of believers may be encouraged. The purpose of Paul's pastoral agony is for the, the, the encouragement of the heart of the believer individually and corporately. Not mere behavior change, not, a, not even a societal change out there, but for the encouragement not of the hands, but of the heart, the core of the person that Christ and the proclamation of and the setting forth of Christ would penetrate to the innermost being of who you are, believer and church. That there would be encouragement, that you would know and taste and see encouragement in Him. This is Yes, this is encouragement rightly translated, but more encouragement, comfort, more of a life-giving help in the midst of affliction. What we sang in Psalm 23, our, our opening hymn, the comfort of knowing and being near unto the Lord Jesus as in the midst of, of in, the, in the valley of the shadow of death, we fear nothing because he is with us, his rod and staff comfort us, and we cannot fear death because he has been raised from the dead. We know this encouragement in our very bones because the setting forth of Jesus Christ cannot help but encourage the Christian. Another component, another aspect of this, of this purpose of Paul's pastoral agony here, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love being knit together in love. We talk often about union with Christ. We heard at, at Carol's funeral yesterday about the doctrine of union with Christ and the benefits of it for the, the believer even in death. Union with Christ, as we'll see throughout, throughout Colossians, not beginning here, but also here, union with Christ also means union with Christians. Union with Christ means union with each other as well. So the setting forth of Christ as the pastor agonizes, whether the extraordinary work of the apostle or the ordinary work of the minister, as the, as the minister unpacks and opens up this treasure chest that is Jesus Christ, it will manifest in, it ought to manifest in believers in union with this Christ being united to each other, being knit together in love. Paul uses that same a, a similar form of this word later on in chapter 2, if you want to skip down to verse 19, we'll just jump in into the middle of the sentence there, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So that same kind of word there, knit together, through its joints and ligaments, what does that sound like? It sounds like the human person. It sounds like the body. We, in union with our head, Jesus Christ, as his body, we have the same kind of spiritual, mystical, real, and inseparable union with each other that we have with him. And that union with Jesus Christ that we have by faith 
ought to be seen in our union with each other. This is the same kind of thought Paul just about opened the epistle with back in chapter 1. Look, look there with me, chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Why is there love from saint to saint? Why is there true, self-giving, self-sacrificial, seeking the good of the other, the good of the other, the, the believer seeking the good of fellow believer, because of, verse 5, chapter 1, the hope laid up for you, for all of us mutually in heaven, all of us together. So when we are in vital, life-giving contact with the vine, we the branches, as Jesus talks about in John 15, the branch has no nourishment in itself. The branch cannot produce fruit. It is dead in itself. But in union with the vine, abiding in the vine, there is no shortage of production of fruit. The vine is where all the life is. The vine is where all the nourishment is. The vine is where it all is. There is nothing in the branch. And as you do not abide in the vine, you will produce nothing. In terms of what we're seeing here in chapter 2, verse 2, you won't be knit together in love, believer with fellow believer. As you depend upon yourself, as you are abiding in something that is not Christ. There will not be knitting together in love. There will be the sowing the seeds of discord and of, and, and of hatred instead. We have this contact with the things that are above, where Christ is seated, with, seated at God's right hand. We already have access to God in the heavenly places, and we ought to, that ought to manifest in love for the brethren. Sadly, that will not be seen perfectly until the last day, but it is something that ought to be striven for, ought to be sought after as we grow in more consistency, living out who we are in Jesus Christ. So I would suggest to you, believer, without knowing the particulars of your, of your hardship, of your struggle with a fellow believer, I would suggest to you, first and foremost, before you do anything else in addressing that hardship, that interpersonal conflict, you need to take a long, hard look at the situation and ask yourself if you are abiding in the vine or abiding in something else, being ruled by Christ or being ruled by your preferences. Another aspect, another component of this, of this pastoral agony, the purpose of Paul's pastoral agony here in verse 2, we just saw being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. There's a, there's a nice long, layered phrase from Paul, typical of him. He's talking there about, about a wealth and a confidence in that wealth in, in the singular. There is, a, there is a wealth of spiritual blessing, capital S, Holy Spirit blessing in the Lord Jesus for this age and the age to come. And why does Paul agonize in this toil, in this pastoral toil because being a pastor is, a, is good for him socially? No, because unpacking the riches of Christ is to glorify Christ in showing Christians something. As much as our finite eyes can see and comprehend, look how great Christ is. Look how, look how, look how the, you can't see the bottom of this treasure chest. You can't see either end of it. It's too good to be true, but it is true. 
Look how great Christ is, the wealth that is ours in him. This, this word that Paul uses for, for wealth, or translated there, the riches in verse 2, is the same, same word that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 11, verse 26, how Moses counted the reproach of Christ greater wealth, greater treasures than all the wealth of Egypt. He was glad to leave all that Egypt had to offer him and the safety and security that Egypt had to offer him and instead identify with the people of God who grumbled and complained pretty much the entire way from Sinai to Canaan because he was looking ahead to the reward. That's the kind of riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And what Moses knew from a distance, you and I know up close because the mystery has been revealed. Which leads to another aspect of what Paul mentions there, another component of the purpose of Paul's pastoral agony in verse 2. Reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding that you, that you would know all these things, that you would comprehend and live out of all these things, believer and church. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now we saw a few weeks ago this, that the mystery... Paul has already mentioned in, in chapter 1, this same kind of section from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. Let's just read again, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that same thing in chapter 2, verse 2 the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And just to review, I think we have time for this. The, the nature of this mystery, as Paul uses that term, probably in, in stark contrast, in intentional contrast to how the Colossian heretics might have used that word, certainly as some of the surrounding false religions would have used the word mystery. The false usage the false religions would have used the word mystery, would have talked about mysteries as saying, okay, good job. You know enough, you know some already. That, that's good. You're on the, on the right path. But let me tell you some more stuff, some mysteries that uh, isn't for everybody for the low, low price of $49.99, two, two easy uh, payments. I'll tell you a little bit of stuff, some, some data that only certain people can know. Only certain people are privy to this, okay? So you're, you'll be special, and with this information, you'll have all you need. You'll have full access to the spiritual realities. That is not the, the kind of thing Paul means by mystery. He's taking the, this concept, and he's filling it with entirely new content, entirely Christian content, not to talk about a set of beliefs, not intellectual data, but an historical manifestation. Not an intellectual thing, but an historical thing. That's what we see in chapter 1, verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed, chapter 2, verse 2, is Christ. Christ was hidden for for all this time, from the first gospel promise when Adam and Eve broke covenant with God in the garden, all the way to the fullness of time, Christ was hidden. He was known through the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. He was known in 
black and white. He was known from a distance. The copies of the heavenly things were seen in terms of how Hebrews talks about that entire old covenant way of life, that old covenant order. But what we now enjoy is those same things. Now in the new covenant, those same things in fulfillment and in fullness as Christ has come and has fulfilled all of God's promises. Then was the age of copy. Now is the age of substance. Then was the age of promise. Now is the age of fulfillment. Then was the age of blessing for the nation of Israel. Now is the age of blessing for all nations in the finished work of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So again, to mention Moses yet yet one more time, if Moses could press on knowing Christ only through types and shadows in an Aaronic priesthood, in the tabernacle worship, an occasional presentation of animal sacrifices through a sinful high priest, how much more can we press on, believer, in this age through our earthly pilgrimage, now that we know God not in an earthly tabernacle but the heavenly one, not through a sinful high priest but the sinless high priest, not through the presentation of of imperfect work in an earthly tabernacle, but the perfection of that work in the heavenly tabernacle and, and, and blood shed, not repeatedly, but once and for all, once and never to be repeated because of its perfection and finality. How much more can we press on for the hope set before us, for the joy set before us? If Moses could do it looking to the reward, how much more can we do it looking to the reward and having a glimpse of it already? having our, our hands around it in, in a real sense until we see it in fullness. This is, th- these are the components of the purpose of Paul's pastoral agony to set forth all the riches of Jesus Christ for all of his people. And that leads us to, thirdly and finally, we see something of the treasury of Christ for the Christian. The treasury of Christ for the Christian. We've already mentioned this in, in, in some form up to this point. Verse 3, who is Christ? Now this, this now revealed mystery, the consummation of all of God's promises, at least invisibly in this age till we wait the fullness of, of it visibly in the age to come. What is dawned now in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises, the coming of his kingdom, the pouring out of his spirit upon the nations. Who is this Christ? He is the one in whom, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That wealth we saw in, in verse 2, what, what is in verse 2 translated the riches here, what is singular, the wealth in verse 2, is expanded or seen from another angle in verse 3 as the treasures, plural. These, these treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge in verse 3, these are hidden not in the sense Paul would be contradicting himself if he said it in this kind of Gnostic, only for a select few kind of way, not hidden in that sense, hidden only for a special reserved few. They're hidden in the sense that they can never be taken away. As Jesus himself says that your treasure is laid up in heaven, store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt, where, st- where thieves cannot break in and steal. What Peter picks up on in 1 Peter 1.4, that we have a hope laid up for us in heaven, imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. Now, we could spend a few sermons, perhaps, 
on the fullness of unpacking what it means that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. But I want to focus in on one theme as the treasures of wisdom and knowledge point to the heavenly blessing that is ours in Christ, now invisibly to be ours in fullness, visibly at the age to come, as these things, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, are seen in the imagery of that first sacrament, that first sign and seal of God's blessing to his people in the tree of life. So turn with me as we close to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And do you see here, as we will not go through this extensively, but do you see just in this quick reading how wisdom, wisdom and knowledge, wisdom from God and knowledge of God, all the treasures of which are in Jesus Christ, this is portrayed here in Proverbs 3 as of greater value than anything on earth. It is of heavenly value. So wisdom and knowledge is not just knowing a lot, not just knowing how to go about sticky situations. That can have its, its place as well. That's fine. This is about acquiring something that cannot be found on earth, that cannot be given in this fallen creation. But this is, some, this is about acquiring something that is of the heavenly order of things, that comes only in the heavenly man, the only one raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ, raised from the dead, who has become for us wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ himself is the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in Christ, Colossians chapter 2, we have all, not, not most, not some, we have than which nothing can be added to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, we have all access to God in the heavenly places. This, is the, this imagery of the tree of life signifies all these things. Remember the first time we see the tree of life in history. It is one of those two special trees that Adam has to, has to obey with reference to. He is to avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He is to decide for God and not for Satan in his testing, in this tree of testing. And as, as Satan tempts Adam, he tempts him to question God's goodness and God's truthfulness. In the day that you eat of it, you won't surely die. But Adam is, is tested to see, will he obey God for God's sake? Even if in a, real, in a real sense, however qualified, even if it was arbitrary that God should say, not this tree, but the others, Adam's response was to be one of unqualified obedience and, yes, Lord, I don't know why, but whatever you say. 
Will Adam obey God for God's sake, or will he listen to the Antichrist serpent? And if Adam had obeyed, the life that was held out to him, the higher heavenly life that was held out to him, was symbolized in the tree of life. You see, life in the Garden of Eden, as good as it was, very good as Genesis says, it was not the best kind of life. This is life that was losable and it was lost. This is life that could have changed and it did change. This is life in the presence of the, of the serpent, Satan. What kind of life is that? As good as it is, it's not the best. So God holds out to Adam in that covenant of works in Genesis chapter 2 that on the basis of Adam's perfect, personal, perpetual, exact and entire obedience, he would pass and all his posterity would pass in him from lower life to the highest life, from earthly life to heavenly, from losable to unlosable life, from serpent presence to serpent-free life with God in the heavenly places. And he would have been granted the right to eat of the tree of life and pass into heavenly blessing and glory in Sabbath rest for all eternity. Since he disobeyed, though, what surrounds the tree of life? A flaming sword guarded by angel messengers. If you're going to come to the tree of life, you need to undergo a flaming sword judgment and be put to death and receive God's wrath for Adam's sin. Where do we see the tree of life again besides here in Proverbs? We see it not just at the beginning, but at the end as well. The tree of life comes up in the presence of of the, the heavenly sanctuary of God in Revelation 2 and 22. The tree of life is in the paradise of God, and Jesus Christ grants all who are in union with him access to eat, to eat of it and receive the fullness of heavenly blessing to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres, faithful to the end. Next time we see the, I should say the last time we see the, the tree of life at the end, we saw it at the beginning, we saw it soon after the beginning with a, with a flaming sword around it. We see it at the end, though, in Revelation 22, with no flaming sword. We also see no, no sea at the end in the, in the new creation. There's only stability and no more chaos waters infecting the, the, the heavenly presence and tabernacle sanctuary of God. There's no flaming sword surrounding the tree of life at the very end. Why not? Where did it go? Because Jesus Christ came under that flaming sword judgment for us as the fire of God's wrath was poured out upon him on that cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago, and he received the judgment we deserved, and he received it in our place and for us so that we could have access to the tree of life and come into the fullness of heavenly blessing in and with him, both now and forever. Of course, the fullness of heaven is yet to come, but we have the beginning of it now. We experience it even now. Ephesians 2, 6, we've been raised with Jesus Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, Philippians 3, 20, we are citizens of heaven. Hebrews 12, 22, but we have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Galatians 1, 4, Jesus Christ delivered himself to redeem us from this present evil age, by implication, to bring us into a new age, a new order of things, the order of heaven and life and light and righteousness. So to have, believer, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in, in Jesus Christ is to have heavenly life in him, even now, 
And the best is yet to come when we come into the fullness of his presence in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. As Paul says in Colossians 1, we saw last time or a, a few times ago that Jesus Christ is the, is the hope of glory, the foretaste, the actual beginning of and foretaste of the fullness that is yet to come. So believer, your pastors agonize to show you all of Christ, and it's good for you to know that. And we all want to go as deep as creatures can into the fullness of who Jesus Christ is for his people. There is much to be discovered. Don't focus on one diamond over to the expense of a ruby. Focus on all that is in Jesus Christ and drink deeply of him. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. By implication, in me, you have all. In terms of our closing hymn, based on the, the writings of Samuel Rutherford, Rutherford and the, the hymn say, say it well. Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Amen and may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.